This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Postal Service is opting for a non-voluntary reduction in force of its non-bargaining unit employees. It's part of an agency restructuring that started once Postmaster General Louis DeJoy took office. USPS is also lifting a hiring freeze on management jobs and sending out a second round of voluntary early retirement offers ahead of the RIF. Lots going on here. Here with the latest details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And Jory, let's start with the RIF. Why is that happening? The short answer to that is that the Postal Service hasn't yet hit its magic number that it's trying to get to as part of an overall administrative headcount reduction. And they didn't get that through the first round of voluntary early retirement offers that they started this March. They announced them in March and employees had until April to say yes or no to those offers. And you know, another component to this is that the Postal Service is also consolidating its 67 districts into 50 districts. And so the short answer here is less management for a smaller footprint. And who is likely to be affected here? Well, it's limited in scope here. This applies only to non-union management employees who work at the Postal Service's headquarters or area offices or its district offices. So no one that the public necessarily would come face to face with. No, these aren't what you would consider front-facing jobs. They're not your letter carriers. They're not people that would be out on a route on a day-to-day basis. These people that are affected, what happens with them? How's this all going to play out? They're going to find out more in the coming weeks. There are going to be a series of town hall meetings that will start the week of May 17th. And after those town hall meetings, there'll be more one-on-one conferences with people who are affected here. Employees who are on the receiving end of this RIF will receive notices in the mail and via their work emails on May 21st. And that will outline a couple of options for them. For some of the employees, they may get an offer for reassignment or demotion or it may translate into a layoff for them. And so regardless of those outcomes, the next step for them would be in October when they would separate from the agency or accept this new position. And there seems to be a little bit of a contradiction here because they are having this RIF, which is non-voluntary, yet they're also lifting the hiring freeze on managerial positions. So how does that fit into the picture? Yeah, this is another moving piece to it, is that the Postal Service has lifted its hiring freeze that has been in place since last summer. And this is, again, management positions that we're talking about. And they're going to post new openings to fill these unfilled positions uh, at the end of this month on May 25th. And what's going to happen here is it's going to be going out in a couple of phases. In the first two phases here, the Postal Service will kind of open these positions to everyone. It'll be employees impacted by the RIF. It'll be employees not impacted by the RIF. But In a third phase, the Postal Service will have a limited job offer posting where only RIF-impacted employees will be able to apply to those jobs. And to get a sense of what kind of jobs we're talking about here, these are jobs at the headquarters level or at the area and district offices. It also applies to customer service field positions and some processing plant jobs on a case-by-case basis. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. So given that there's a RIF 
It doesn't necessarily mean layoffs if the affected employees can join the ranks that they're seeking to hire. It sounds like more of a rearrangement in forces than a reduction in forces in some ways. That's perhaps a helpful way to look at it. Uh, There will, of course, be some layoffs in this, but a reshuffling and resizing of positions as opposed to personnel is a good way to look at it. And it's the way that the National Association of Postal Supervisors looks at it as well. Uh, I spoke with their president, Brian Wagner, last month, and he said that, you know, there are all these moving pieces here, but they do kind of align that the Postal Service, and they've worked with the Postal Service management on this before, that they like to open up these landing spots with opening up this hiring freeze. And that gives employees options in that, you know, if they do want to continue with the Postal Service in a job that they see sticking around, they have that option. And if they don't, then they can pursue employment elsewhere. I guess they could also get a job with the fire department. And what about the latest USPS 10-year plan? Uh, You mentioned that it got started under Louis DeJoy, but didn't totally originate with him. What's the story there now? The first step forward that the Postal Service is taking on this 10-year plan is actually dusting off a plan that's been on the books since 2015, and that is a consolidation of some of its processing plants out across the country that are primarily focused on sorting mail at a pretty high volume here. They're looking at consolidating 18 mail processing facilities and taking the stuff, the gear, the equipment that's in there and moving it elsewhere within the network in places where they consider it more in need. And so what's interesting here is, again, this was on hold for years and years. Congress actually pressured the Postal Service to stop it. And so this is really a phase two of this consolidation. In phase one, which was from 2012 to 2013, the Postal Service consolidated 141 facilities. So compare that against the 18 that we're talking about now. One other thing that's also worth mentioning is that the Postal Service is accelerating its acquisition of package sorting equipment, and they're looking to have that up and running ahead of its 2021 peak holiday season. You'll remember that not too long ago, the Postal Service was inundated with a record volume of packages in November and December of last year, and they delivered 1.1 billion packages in that period of time alone. I think half of them came up my street. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of his stories. He's been following Postal Service prodigiously at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, 
that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive. Uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. 
that's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, What comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, 
But we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.